Let me pray for us. Lord, um, as we come to this passage so crucial and central to the entirety of our faith, I uh, feel unworthy to be preaching it. Um, I feel unworthy hearing it. I feel unworthy receiving this gift that you've given. And Lord, so I pray for all of us here, myself included, that we would hear and receive your word to us this morning. We would hear and receive the work of the cross in our lives. And that in it, through it, we would be made new. In the name of Jesus, amen. So in this final servant song, this final half of the final servant song, uh, that we've been going through this entire Lenten season, God, through Isaiah, really takes us to the heart of it all. Takes us right to the work of the cross of Jesus Christ. Everything that the servant of God has come to do has been leading to this, his death upon the cross. And so as we read this passage, there's so much to, to dig into but I really want to just focus on Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. And if you want to have your Bibles open to that, that would be great. Um, but 4 through 6, uh, these verses really are the ones that focus on uh, the work of the cross and the substitutionary atonement that Jesus has, has done for us. There's a lot of great stuff in the, the rest of our passage. Verses 7 through 9 talk about how Jesus was the innocent sufferer. Now, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and he was oppressed, but he did not fight back. Not because he was weak, but because he, that was his intention. His intention was to be there, and he endured oppression and suffering as an innocent lamb. Verses 10 through 12 talk about how this is God's victory, that the servant experiences satisfaction in his work completed, and the will of the Lord prospers in his hand. That the will of the Lord was present and active through all of this. But in verses 4 through 6, we have this sense of Jesus is doing this for us. He's putting himself in our place. And this is really central to the whole of our faith. Everything that we believe, everything we stand on comes to this moment. Because the cross is not just this historical event that we look back on and remember and, and rejoice in or celebrate in. It's not something we simply remember, but it's a historical event that somehow, by faith, we participate in and is active in our lives, even today. This is what Jesus came for. This is everything that he's about is the work on the cross. And it really comes down to this idea of substitution. That Jesus gave himself in our place. And he died where we should have died. These days, this idea is not very fashionable to talk about. We'd much rather, our culture would much rather point to Jesus and say, he's a great teacher, a great example of how we should live. A prophet, even, who gave spiritual guidance to people. Those things are true, certainly. But you can't remove Jesus' teaching. You can't remove his ministry or the example of his life from his work on the cross. That's everything that he came to do, is, is this work on the cross. And how he put himself in our place. So let's dig into this idea of substitution that we read in these few verses. And the substitution as a concept, 
definition is one person or thing acting in the place of another person or thing. And you use this in a variety of contexts. In cooking, you can substitute soy milk for dairy milk, sometimes substitute oil for eggs. If I'm out at a restaurant, I'm going to substitute extra fries for that side salad I'm not going to eat. In sports, one player takes the place of another player on the field as a substitute. Something is taking the place of another. And it's in the same way, but on a completely different level, this is what Jesus is doing for us. He's taking our place on the cross. And I want to read these three verses, verses 4 through 6. And I want to see how many times we read about substitution in these three verses. And I'll just tell you, it's seven times in three verses that, I, that God, through Isaiah, tells us that Jesus is doing this for us and in our place. So every time we read that plural personal pronoun, are, that possessiveness, that's what Jesus is doing for us. So surely he has borne our griefs. They are not our griefs anymore to bear. They, he has borne them for us. He substituted himself in place of us to bear our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. There we see the effect of what he has done for us. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Seven times in three verses. If it's not clear what God is trying to communicate here, you read it again because there's seven times that he's communicating that Jesus has taken our place. And if we read it in the Hebrew, the Hebrew has this grammatical form where the personal pronoun is emphasized to, to show that whose work is being done here. So in Hebrew, the personal pronoun, he, is emphasized over and over again. He did this. He bore our sins. He bore our, was crushed for our iniquities. This is showing that this is Jesus' work from beginning to end. It's not even something that we played any part in. It's his work. But we're deeply involved in this, nonetheless. Because there are our transgressions, our iniquities. And we read in this passage this key distinction that Jesus died not just for our sakes, but in our place. There's an important distinction to realize there. Not just for our sakes, but in our place. Because to do something for the sake of another person is to want to benefit them, to want to bless them or serve them or support them. To do something in their place is to take on their burden yourself, to take on their responsibility or your task and do it instead of them. There's the distinction between coming alongside someone and standing in their place for them. So we not only receive the benefits of Jesus' work on the cross, that he died for our sakes, but because he stood in our place, paid the price for our sins for us that we should have paid, we 
can be free. We can have salvation because the price of the debt of our sins has been paid. Now, my son Sam and I uh, love to read together The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia. And he really enjoys this, so we keep reading it over and over again. I'm trying to introduce the other books. We're on to Prince Caspian. But he wants to keep going back to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, If you're not familiar with this children's novel, um, it's this allegory that C.S. Lewis wrote uh, to try to communicate Jesus and what he's done. So these four children come into this magical land of Narnia, and they meet uh, Aslan, the, the king, the great lion, and among all these other magical beasts, he's the king. And the third, the third child, Edmund, betrays them to the white witch. And he goes over to their side, and he's a traitor to the cause of Aslan. And when he's rescued and brought back into their camp, the witch comes to Aslan and says, there's a traitor among you. And according to the laws of the deep magic from the dawn of time, that every time there's a treachery, she has the right to a kill. That his blood is her property. And so this is the laws of the land. And Aslan admits this. But he negotiates with the witch and he decides to take Edmund's place. And he says, instead of killing him, you get to kill me. And she does. And uh, he raises again from the deeper magic from before the dawn of time uh, that he took Edmund's place. But all of this is to communicate just exactly what Jesus did. And this is a helpful allegory for us because the metaphors always fall short. Sometimes it's helpful to just tell a story straight up that's, that's an allegory because metaphors really fall short. And I was, you know, I'm having trouble illustrating this and communicating it in different ways because there's been nothing else like this. There's nothing else in all of creation that can compare to this. But Jesus died in my place. And that means it should have been me up there on the cross. It should have been me paying the price for my sins. It should have been me suffering and dying like that. And when we talk about the cross, it's not just about me. It's not just about you. It's not just you and Jesus against the world, because it's much bigger than that. But all of us are personally deeply involved and implicated in the work of the cross. Because it's one thing to say that Jesus died for the sins of the world. It's another thing to say that he died for my sins, my sorrows, my iniquities. It can become very personal very quickly, sometimes uncomfortably so. And there's a scandal here, too, to the cross. There's some aspect of it that's scandalous that the innocent one should die for the sins of the guilty. It upends the moral order of justice and the laws of the universe that, that frame everything. We all know that good people should get good rewards, bad people should get punishment and judgment. That's the way the world works, and that's God's job, the Lord of morality and moral order and justice. He doles out punishment for the wicked and gives gifts to the righteous. We all have this sense of right and wrong and what justice is and what justice 
requires. And so this flies in the face of everything we know about moral order and justice, that the innocent one should suffer in the place of the guilty. But there's just one problem with the universe. There's no one who's good. There is no one who is righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. And God, the Lord of moral order and justice, decided to take all of the sin and the evil of the world upon himself. The innocent one, the holy one, the just one. He paid the penalty in our place and for our sakes and gives back to us life and righteousness and mercy. Is this fair? No. But this is love given out for you. This is scandalous in some ways. And it, for, especially for those of us who really care about moral order and, and justice, it, it can be outrageous or even offensive, the work of the cross. And then I realized that this is me, that I'm the ungodly, I'm the sinner. I'm the person who has gone so far away from God, who's so out of step with the goodness and the moral order of the Lord that I'm beyond saving apart from his work. And maybe you're thinking at this point, well, that's good for other people. That's not, that's not me. I'm not so bad. I'm not a sinner like all those other people out there. That's not what God is saying here through Isaiah. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's not just about what you've done. It's not just about your deeds or the lifestyle that you lead. It's about that you're separated from God. You are alienated from the Lord who made you and who desires you for himself. And you are enslaved to sin and death. And can't get back there on your own. There's no one who doesn't need the work of the cross. On the flip side, there's no one who's too far beyond its work. There's no one whose sins are too great that the work of Christ on the cross is greater still. Jesus, the servant of God, the man of sorrows, it wasn't his sorrows that he bore there on the cross. It wasn't his griefs. It wasn't his transgressions. It was yours. It was mine. He took our place. He substituted himself for us. And generally, I find it really unhelpful to dwell on, like, the mechanics of how these things work. These are things that theologians and academics spend all their time quibbling about, quarreling over words, and don't actually lead anyone closer to Jesus. But sometimes... Sometimes thinking through how God did this is helpful for us growing in appreciation and leading us into worship and leading us to the cross that we might give our lives to the Lord. So I want to look at very quickly at this concept of imputation that theologians talk about. Imputation, or to impute. Uh, and this is a theological word. It's not a biblical word, but it's something that 
Christians throughout the ages have used to describe what is going on here in this act of substitution. Imputation comes from the Latin word imputare, which means to charge to an account. It's a financial word. It's monetary. To charge to an account, some debt or some payment. So if I go to the club, and uh, to the field club, and I order a really nice dinner and a really expensive bottle of wine, at the end of it I say, uh, please charge that to the Gordon account. I'm imputing my debt, my payment, onto Bill and Arlene, who I'm sure will graciously accept that and pay for it. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's a charge, it's a debt, it's a payment that's owed that is charged to an account that must be then paid. It's the understanding that debts need to be paid Debts just can't go on there forever. The tab has to be closed out. The check has to be written. Guilt must be paid for. And so, somehow, miraculously, the Lord imputed our sins onto Jesus. He charged our debts onto his accounts. He charged the debt of our sins, this immeasurable weight on us that can only lead to death, to his own son as a substitute, that he would pay that price for us because the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus paid that price because our sins were imputed to him. But it goes even further than that because out of that, Jesus imputed his righteousness onto us. The Lord imputed our sins unto him and his righteousness unto us. This double imputation, this double charging, an exchange that is more profound and more beautiful than anything else in the history of the world. My sins unto Jesus, his righteousness unto me. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake the Lord made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Lord made him to be sin. That somehow he so embodied all the transgressions and the sins of the world as he carried that debt, that he became sin. And the Lord gave us his righteousness. This exchange, uh, how can we comprehend it? How can we grasp it? How is it fair? How is it just? This is God's salvation for you and for me. Jesus paid the penalty for the sins that were rightly mine, and now I have the righteousness and the life that is rightly His. The debt is paid in full, and now we can claim His righteousness as our own. We can come into eternal life because our slate is washed clean. And this historical event that, that really happened in history 2,000 years ago is something that does have real effect for us today. It does have some profound influence on us. It's not just something we remember, as I said before, but it changes us. And I think we need to start by even recognizing the weight of our own sins. And as we come to confess our sins, of, of taking that seriously, 
and of bringing before the Lord all the things that we've done and left undone that have harmed him, that have offended him, that have, have turned us away from him. Because the wages of sin is death. That because of your sin, you should pay the price of that. You should suffer and die as Jesus did. We are guilty. And we deserve nothing but death. And all we like sheep have gone astray. And it's not just our actions, it's our status as people who are alienated from the Lord. So this is something that's, that's beyond us. It's out of our control in a lot of ways. It's not something you can behave your way into righteousness. It's not something you can shape your actions in accordance with God. But it's still on us. We're still guilty. We still have that label across us as sinner. Guilty. But Jesus' substitution takes our guilt upon himself and relieves us of it. That we are no longer called guilty. We are no longer called sinner. We are no longer called alienated from God because we've been freed from that weight of burden. He brought us peace. His chastisement brought us peace. That Hebrew word shalom, which means uh, wholeness and flourishing and fulfillment. His wounds brought us healing, not just always physical healing, but spiritual healing from the sin sickness that has poisoned our souls. He brought us healing. His death has brought us life. His suffering has brought us righteousness. And that price has been paid for us when we can receive that for ourselves. We know the weight of sin lifted. We know a new identity that is no longer called sinner, but is called saint. This is something that happened 2,000 years ago, and it's finished. It's done once and for all. But through faith, we can enter into that saving grace today, even now. In faith, we come to the cross. When the death and the resurrection of Jesus becomes real to us, becomes something we can rely on and trust in and put our whole lives staked on that moment, then we will know the lifting of the weight of sin. We will carry that burden no longer. We are guilty no more. We are saved by the grace of the cross. And through faith, we enter into that and we receive the gift of Jesus. So that's what I want to invite you to today. I want to invite you, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, to come and receive the work of the cross for you. To come and know that you are no longer called sinner, but you are called a child of God. You are called a saint in his eyes. Because you've been given the righteousness of Jesus that's not your own. I want to invite you to a personal encounter with Jesus on the cross. To know how this ancient, brutal execution can have personal and profound effect on your life today. So I want to invite you to look at Jesus on the cross. Behold him there. Use the eyes of faith. Maybe close your, your physical eyes if that's helpful. But behold him hanging there on the cross for you. 
bloodied and beaten, asphyxiating and straining to breathe. He's there for you where you should be. He's there in your place. Should be you suffering like that. In that moment, he takes on your sin, your iniquities, the weight of all the debt that you owe, all the things you've done and left undone, your separation from the Lord. He takes that on himself. and He pays the price for you. He died as your substitute. He imputed your sin unto himself and imputed his righteousness unto you. So just imagine him. Picture him in this moment taking the weight of sin from you. Receiving it onto his own body. Gently saying to you, I'll have that. I'll take that from you. And in return, he wants to give you his grace, his righteousness, his mercy that leads to everlasting life. And as you picture him there, as you behold him, I want to encourage you to hear him speaking to you from the cross. Maybe saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, let me pay the price for you. Come to me, let me bear your guilt and sorrows. Let my wounds heal you. You've gone astray and you've sinned. Give that to me and let me take it away. Come receive my righteousness as I receive your guilt. Come into freedom and into everlasting life. The price has been paid for you. Jesus substituted himself for you, taken on your debt the penalty of your sins. He died in your place and for your sake. All that can be done by us is to receive this gift. And may it be so in us today. I'm going to let the Lord have the last word and just read these verses again for us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen.